Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, controlled burns in the BWCA, and a close look at the importance of maintaining safety and mental health for the state's farmers. But first... Lawmakers at the state capitol this week held an informational hearing on a bill that would allow physician-assisted suicides in Minnesota. There was emotional testimony. His life has dignity, it has value, and it has worth. And this bill bolsters bigotry in the medical profession toward people with disabilities like Kylan. This bill perpetuates bias and prejudice, and it says that you're better off dead than disabled. I'm here today to say I want to live as long as I can. I want the medical care that can ease my pain and allow me to be in relationship with my children, my family, and my friends. But when the time comes, I want a good death. I want to die at home. I want to be surrounded by people who love me. I want everybody to be in ritual and in prayer, holding hands with candles lit around me. I don't want to be in a hospital. I don't want to have to have tubes in me. I want to be at home. Democratic Representative Mike Freiberg of Golden Valley explains what prompted him to author the bill. Well, it's modeled after a law uh, that's been in place in Oregon for about 20 years and has currently been enacted in, I think, at least four other states. Um, It uh, sets out a process by which a person with a terminal illness can choose to end their own life uh, in a nonviolent manner. Um, There are many safeguards in place to ensure uh, it's done in a thoughtful and non-pressured type situation. So essentially the way it works is that two physicians have to attest that a patient is suffering from a terminal illness, which is defined as an illness where they have less than six months to live. There also has to be a determination that they are of sound uh, mental mind and so not suffering from depression, not suffering from dementia that impairs their ability to make an informed decision. And then they have to be able to self-administer the medication once it's been prescribed. Opponents of the bill say government should find ways to prioritize proper treatment and management of pain and quality end-of-life care, not hasten death. Freiburg responds. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I would agree that we need to improve end-of-life care and have all sorts of options out there for them, including, you know, increased funding for palliative care, hospice services, and so forth. The uh, the experience in Oregon shows that um, end-of-life care is actually improved um, with with this in there. There's, um, you know, the hospice care is doing just just fine in Oregon. People are taking advantage of it. Uh, nobody's uh, nobody who doesn't want to take advantage of this law is being required to. Uh, you know the the rates of suicides for people, you know violent suicides from people suffering from debilitating diseases have have almost decreased in you know in hospital or healthcare settings just because they know this option is out there. So I mean I guess I would agree with the first part of their statement. You know that we need to make sure every option is available and we need to make sure end of life care is as comfortable as possible for everybody, and they have options that are available to them. Republican Senator Jim Abler opposes the bill for a number of reasons. You know, this is a bill that sounds really good on its face value. Let's be humane to people whose whose ending is imminent, and we're sorry to see them go, but let's not make it more difficult. 
but there's what you have to worry about here is a lot of unintended consequences. And this is uh, an idea, assisted suicide, that is going to have more unintended consequences than I believe the authors even intended. And I applaud them for their humanitarianism, but I'm extremely concerned about the effects that could happen. This now makes assisted suicide a treatment option. And as I understand, insurance companies already have offered to pay in various states where they allow this in times when they have not allowed treatment. And so if you trust the insurance companies to do the right thing for you and they can save a bunch of money by just having giving you some end-of-life medication and they don't want to treat your condition, uh, that is horrible. That's like murder. And uh, we don't trust insurance companies sometimes anyway, but now with this new option, it's really very risky. If you happen to be a person with a disability, uh, it's only one step away from when this is a much better option for these individuals. And some people, depending upon their level of disability, do have very challenging times. Uh, but to make this an easy way out, I think, is horrible. And already in this country, 23 veterans a day kill themselves. Untold young people are killing themselves. I ran into a 25-year-old uh, patient of mine. She said she's lost more friends to suicide than to anything else. To promote this as a viable option, I think it's just going down way the wrong path. And we're going to unleash a firestorm of really bad things on our culture. Abler has this message to terminally ill people who support the bill. That I, I have a lot of sympathy for the people that find themselves in the situation. I think it's tragic. But I'm not willing to put the lives of people with disabilities and people that are already at risk for just committing suicide anyway to bring this forward as an option that actually is legitimized. Uh, the culture is too full of young people killing themselves. When this becomes what some people do, uh, then it will become even more popular because it will be more acceptable. To raise it to the level of to raise it to the level of acceptability, I think is a really, really bad idea. How much traction the bill gets in the upcoming legislative session and whether it receives bipartisan support remain to be seen. MNN will follow this highly emotional and controversial issue in the months ahead. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single, boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. September is National Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. MNN's Tasha Radel tells us it's the deadliest of all the gynecological cancers. Around 22,000 women in the U.S. are diagnosed with ovarian cancer each year, and 14,000 die of the disease. It's an important month for Minnesota women to sit back and listen because this cancer is hard to detect. In fact, the American Cancer Society estimates there will be 360 new cases of ovarian cancer in Minnesota this year alone. Joining me now to talk about ovarian cancer is Dr. Britt Erickson with the University of Minnesota. Let's start out with this, uh, Dr. Erickson. What is ovarian cancer? So ovarian cancer is really a spectrum of cancers um, where there are atypical cells that originate either on the ovary or the fallopian tube um, and then grow and form tumors and and frequently spread um, to other parts of the body. And when we talk about ovarian cancer, I know that this is um, really hard, uh, I guess, to de- de- detect early on. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. Um, so unlike other cancers like colon cancer, breast cancer, or cervical cancer, there's actually no um, screening test for ovarian cancer. Um, so things like pap smears and ultrasounds, unfortunately, don't detect this cancer at an early stage. Um, so short of what we call prophylactic surgery or removing the, removing the tubes and ovaries, there's really nothing that can be done at this point um, to prevent this cancer. However, um, this is an area of really active research trying to identify a screening test. And I guess, you know, when we look at this, are there, is, are there any groups of women that are more at risk for this cancer? There are, yeah. Up to about 20% of women who have ovarian cancer um, actually have a mutation in their DNA, what we call a germline mutation, that puts them at risk for developing ovarian cancer. So about one in five women with ovarian cancer um, likely developed that cancer because of a genetic risk. Um, And the most common genetic mutation is something called the BRCA, some people call it BRCA mutation, um, and that accounts for about 15% of women with ovarian cancer. And, you know, it's kind of scary that we can't, uh, you know, I guess really detect this early on, but are there any symptoms uh, women can watch for? There are. Um, Unfortunately, most symptoms of ovarian cancer um, are when the cancer has already metastasized or spread to other parts of the body. Um, And those symptoms are things like bloating, abdominal distension, um, feeling full quickly, and sometimes some vague abdominal pain. Um, But there aren't a lot of symptoms of what we would call early stage ovarian cancer. And how common is ovarian cancer here in Minnesota? The lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer is about 1 in 60 women. We, we talked a little bit about the, the research of it, but when we look at treatment options, are, do we have anything that, that fights this cancer? Yeah, there are um, good treatment options for ovarian cancer, and the majority of women actually do go into remission um, with a combination of aggressive surgery as well as chemotherapy treatments. Um, And so, uh, fortunately, like I said, most women do go into remission. The problem with ovarian cancer is that there are very high rates of what we call recurrence or the cancer coming back even after surgery or chemotherapy treatments. We do have treatment options for women who have recurrent ovarian cancer, but at that point it's very difficult to cure the cancer or ever make it go away completely. All right. Well, lots of good information. Uh, Any other advice uh, for women that may be listening today? 
I think the biggest piece of advice I'd give is to be aware of your family history. So if there are women with ovarian cancer in your family or multiple women who have breast cancer, that might be a clue that your family has a genetic mutation. Um, And so it's worth talking to your doctor about that because then getting tested, if you know you have a mutation, um, then we could prevent you from ever developing ovarian cancer. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Britt Erickson with the University of Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Fall visitors and residents near the Boundary Waters Canoe Area could see some smoke in the forest this fall. But as reporter J.W. Cox tells us, it's not a cause for alarm. The fires are all part of the DNR's controlled burn plan. The plan calls for several burns in a two-month-long window early this fall. We do them in the fall because that is when visitor use is at um, its lowest level. Trying to do them in the spring and the summer when visitor use is starting to ramp up um, has a big impact, and it's really hard to logistically coordinate how to make that happen and keep the public happy because they have permits and all that kind of stuff. The other reason is that if we do them in the spring and the summer, they could potentially sit out there and smolder for days and weeks if we don't get moisture afterwards. So fall time when we're, you know, the weather is um, cooler, moisture, the days are shorter, there's less potential for fires to sit very long, less people out there. Um, That's why we wait till fall. Typically, we want it a little later in the fall when the grasses are starting to cure, the leaves are starting to fall. Um, so that we can get things to carry through those smaller diameter woody debris that's out there on the ground. Patty Johnson is a DNR fire management officer. She says the burns perform a necessary function to the health and safety of the region. These ones that we're doing this fall that are in the Boundary Waters are all related to field reduction efforts so that if we have wildfires, it'll minimize the effects of those wildfires in terms of threats to adjacent land right outside the Boundary Waters. So these are set up right next to the Boundary Waters line where there is infrastructure. With the Wilderness Act, um, the only type of burning we can really do is for public safety reasons. But of course, there's you know other benefits. Moose habitat, especially, is one that's been benefiting from these burns. They're starting to see some increase in some of the populations in areas where we have burned in the past. Johnson described the burn areas planned for this year. There's four of them across the forest planned. Um, Two of them are out of Ely, one is off of Burnside Lake, and the other one is off of Moose Lake um, into Prairie Portage. Out of Grand Marais, there's one by Duncan Lake, and there is one down by Morgan Lake. At this point, Johnson says they cannot pinpoint exactly when conditions will be right for each burn. It's typically like a five to seven day period out. You know, if you talk to all any meteorologist, they'll say that, you know, tomorrow's weather is fairly predictable. Um, two, three days out, you can kind of get an idea, but beyond that, weather is not always very predictable. So we can have an idea of when high pressure sets up and things are going to dry out, but, uh, you know, in five to ten days out, but it doesn't always hold true. But we do start looking in that seven to ten day window because there's just so many things to put into place ahead of time. Public awareness, according to Johnson, is the key to making the burns happen safely. These burns are far 
enough away from road corridors, and we close trails, we close entry points in the area. We do sweeps both through the air and on the ground to make sure there's nobody in the area. So we haven't had an issue with the public getting in the middle of something going on. In the past, we take precautions to prevent that. So really, what the public's going to see is smoke, and they're going to see a lot of firefighters moving around in the area. The smoke, when we're lighting, typically goes up and gets blown away with the wind during the day. What's problematic is when it settles down at night on the lake. So if there's smoke-sensitive people, they should know that there, there's going to be smoke out there. Typically, it's not in what we consider the hazardous level um, for public health, but if you're already smoke-sensitive, that could be an issue. And then, you know, just driving around on the roads with all the firefighters out there is a kind of a safety issue. So just slowing down and taking your time and that type of thing to provide for some traffic safety. If folks do have permits for these areas and we have to um, close the area, we'll be working with anybody that has a permit to change their entry point or allow them to cancel their reservation and get full refund of their money. So we're thinking ahead on that, hoping that's not a situation we have to deal with. As with each year, Johnson says the DNR will be willing to scrap the planned burns if they don't get the right conditions. There's a great potential this year, actually, that they won't happen. Unfortunately, we are actually very prepared to be able to make them happen this year. Um, in the past, there's been struggles with other fire activity going on elsewhere in the nation, and so then we don't have resources. But this year, there's not that obstacle. However, the weather so far is not cooperating. If we get too much rain, which is what's happening, then things won't burn. And we can't go out and just try to burn things to burn things. We really need to be able to meet those objectives of reducing the fuel hazards. The willingness to call off the burns completely underscores the emphasis the DNR decision makers put on safety and caution. Everything kind of has to be in place for us, the number of resources we need, being able to do all of our public safety sweeps to make sure people aren't in the area, um, getting out all our public information to the right sources so everybody's in the loop. We have agreements with other agencies for using resources. So there's a whole host of things that have to be put in place first before we can do these. And definitely the safety of the firefighters and the public is the primary concern with all of this. The window for the burns runs through the end of October. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and, of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier-hound, chihuahua-looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. 
Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's a stressful time of year for farmers all over Minnesota. Safety and health are critical for all farmers. Learfield Brownfield Ag Farm broadcaster Mark Dornkamp sat down with Bruce Alexander, who's director of the Upper Midwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, which is affiliated with the U of M. Alexander is a professor at the School of Public Health. Here's their conversation. UMASH, uh, give our listeners an overview of what it is that you do. Well, UMASH is a center that's one of 10 centers in the country that is funded by the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. And they're dedicated to keeping, to promoting the health and well-being of the people that produce our food, the people in agriculture communities. And so we do a lot around, we particularly focus a lot on animal agriculture now, but we extend to, to other areas, anywhere from injuries, infectious disease risks, respiratory risks. We've worked around mental health, and so we... We try to hit a number of areas related to work or health, people that, the health of people in, in agriculture. I guess I'll start on mental health since it's been uh, such a, an important and big topic here in the last couple of years with uh, a lot of farmers struggling financially. What are some of the resources that you have through UMASH and, and what are some of those conversations like that you're having with producers that are, are just having a tough go? Well, that's was, it's, a, it's a good example where things come up and where we feel we, we try to be as nimble as we can. It wasn't one of our major focus areas, but the more we talked to farmers and we're in, in forums, we said this is what is on people's mind. And so we, our role was to try to pull a few people together. Um, we had a forum that got some conversations going about what are the, what's the availability, accessibility, and affordability of resources, and where are the gaps in our system, and what can we do to maybe connect some people that are interested in this topic. And there are a lot of people that are concerned a lot of people have ideas, but trying to bring them together. So we have a couple of projects working with a, a National Alliance on Mental Illness, who's here at the Farm Center at the at the at Farm Fest, and with a group for cultivating resilience to help tell stories. Another group that's also working at uh, helping uh, introducing mental health as a topic in agricultural education for college-age students. And it's just and coming up with uh, tools that will help start the conversation because what there aren't enough mental health resources clinically to respond to this, and so a lot of the response has to come from the communities and connecting communities so people know how to spot someone who's who's having difficulties, where they can go, what the resources are, how to have those conversations, bringing in the faith-based communities, bringing in our our you know the milk truck drivers, anybody that has conversations with farmers to help them when they're when they're struggling because it is tough times and it's a problem. Yes, outreach is so important. Let's talk about safety on the farm and you mentioned livestock before and it seems like every year we still hear about uh, livestock producers that uh, are overcome with uh, fumes, different things like that. You know, when you're handling manure, uh, I guess we can start there, but then other safety protocols that uh, you're really stressing for those livestock producers. Yeah, so, you know, you brought up the issue of, of uh, gases from agricultural operations and could be, you know, the big one we worry about is hydrogen sulfide that's produced in manure pits and there are some uh, well worked out procedures for trying to control them but it's it's touchy, it's a very difficult uh, system of control and so you know, the more that farmers are aware of that, the more they're uh, able to have monitors and uh, be thinking about the procedures they need to go through to keep anybody out of the uh, the the pits that when they're when they're being agitated or emptied and it's also a safety issue for the animals and that's one of the things we 
in our center we take what we call a One Health approach where we know that we can only keep the people who work with animals healthy and safe as long when the animals are in the same way. So we've got to think about that as well. And the other area that, um, that so, so, you know, I think there's some good resources for that, but, you know, people being aware of the potential hazard around, uh, around uh, hydrogen sulfides and other uh, silo gases, that's, that sort of thing. Because it sneaks up on people, you know. First thing hydrogen sulfide does is deaden the, your sense of smell, and so you think, oh, it's, it smelled bad, but now it doesn't. But then the next thing you know, you're unconscious. So that's a real, it's a real critical area. And I think the other area we, we, other areas we've been focusing on in our center around safety in animal agriculture is animal handling. We have some pretty good animal handling videos um, on our website. Uh, they're in both English and Spanish, directed to dairy and swine right now. We're going to be working out some other, other ones. Uh, proper use of uh, a big problem in animal agriculture injuries are needle stick injuries. And we have some training mater materials on that. And so anytime you're interacting with large animals that can be unpredictable, there's a risk of injury. And so making sure people know how to work with the animals, make, make, making sure they understand their environment, uh, not taking anything for granted. Because even that, that cow that's been gentle all of its life and you've had it for a few years and suddenly she's in the nursery with her new calf will suddenly turn into a different animal. And so you have to always be aware. Bruce, look around us. I mean, there are a lot of young people, and I'm sure many of them uh, live in rural Minnesota, greater Minnesota, perhaps live on a farm and are around farm equipment, around livestock. How does UMASH address uh, child safety on the farm? Well, that's, that's kind of overall when we talk about animal handling, it does extend to children, but there's also another center that's affiliated with the NIOSH centers, and it's based out of uh, the Marshfield Clinic and Marshfield National Farm Medicine Center, which is actually National Farm Medicine Center is a par also a partner of UMASH. But the, the Children's Center uh, is dedicated towards uh, health and safety of children on the, on, in farming. And so that center is actually has a lot of great resources. And a lot of these resources also shared across the, the different centers, the various um, Ag centers in across the country, and we have a uh, uh, NIOSH Ag Center YouTube channel, for example, that gives a lot of great uh, videos on agriculture safety and health. And a lot of those are explicitly directed at children. One of the demonstrations we have here today is around grain bin safety and um, ATV safety, and all of those areas that are important for adults are also important for kids. How can our listeners learn more about UMASH? Well, our website, I think, is the best place to learn it. It's at umash.umn.edu, and we have all of the details on all of our projects and our partners on that, whether it's related to mental health, injuries, uh, infectious diseases, antimicrobial resistance. We have a lot of resources available for people there. And on that website is other organizations, because there are a lot of organizations that are interested in the health and well-being of uh, agricultural populations, and we try to connect them with that, those as well. Well, thank you for the important work that you do, and I appreciate your time today. Okay, well, thank you. That's Mark Dorenkamp with Bruce Alexander of UMASH with great tips on health and safety for rural Minnesotans. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.